So I want to welcome everybody to the first episode of the Sports Performance Professional Podcast. And this is where we bring the facts to issues that are pressing in the sports performance uh, industry. And so to tell you a little bit about the podcast, so what we do is we have a format where each of us, me and my co-host, will have 25 minutes per person to talk about a particular topic that we're focusing on for that particular uh, podcast. And so we can divvy this up based on how we respond, whether we're starting a topic or whether we're actually moving the discussion in a new direction. And so I wanted to show you really quick how to get to our landing page uh, for you to sign up for the emailing list to receive uh, some of our exclusive content that will be coming out. And so you wanna go to Athletic Holistic Systems and that's holistic with an H dot Com, and you'll click the tab in the right as I'm doing here, as I'm showing you, you'll click the podcast tab and it'll take you right to our landing page. And if you scroll down to the bottom, you can type in your first name, last name, and then you'll press the join button and you'll get an email confirmation uh, saying that you have successfully joined our emailing list. So as I take you off of here, And so just to introduce myself uh, briefly, so my name's Tim Smith and I was raised and grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. And so I've been a strength and conditioning coach for the past six years at the university level. And currently I'm a strength and, uh, currently I'm a strength and conditioning coach. Currently I'm a PhD student at MTSU uh, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And my area of focus is sport pedagogy and so I'm just diving into areas of trying to make the sports performance industry, or in this case, strength and conditioning, trying to find better ways to educate coaches and then find uh, predictive metrics to be able to universally evaluate some type of standard for evaluating coaches and developing coaches uh, in the United States. And so I'm gonna go ahead and flip it over to my teammate, my partner in crime on this show, uh, Coach Edelman. What's up, everybody? Um, so my name is Coach Henry Edelman. Uh, Tim, I appreciate the introduction, man. Um, I've known Tim for, for a few years now. Uh, I'm, I was born in California. Tim and I met when I was doing my graduate assistant position over at the uh, Fresno State University. He was working with the University of Washington baseball team. And, you know, as coaches do, he came by the facilities when they came and visited. We met a little bit. He's a really good, smart dude. And uh, I'm excited to do this podcast with him. Um, right now, myself, I'm a, a part-time strength conditioning coach at the University of Tennessee, working mainly with the football program. Um, and then I'm also doing a part-time uh, personal training gig at D1 Hardin Valley. Um, shout out to D1 Hardin Valley. Love those people. Love my clients and everything. And uh, yeah, like I said, I'm excited to get this thing going with Tim. Now, sounds good. And so I'll go ahead and introduce the topic and let me pull up stop screen sharing. And so the topic or the the article that we'll be reviewing today. And so actually, just to take a, a quick step back. And so each podcast that we do, we'll interview interview. We'll talk about a particular. Uh, 
a piece of content that could be an article, a social media post. Uh, it could also be a research paper, et cetera. Um, and so we'll literally deep dive and we'll go into the article section by section. I mean, line by line. And we'll go particularly back and forth uh, on what we think about it, some practical solutions, uh, you know, kind of forecasting. Uh, you know, how the impact of this uh, will have in the future. And again, same thing as, you know, me kind of going back and uh, bringing up some historical context to see, you know, with these issues, you know, what has happened in the past in other fields? And is this something that's actually, you know, a repeated cycle uh, just within uh, strength and conditioning, et cetera. Uh, and so the article that we'll be reviewing today uh, and doing a deep dive in is called should strength and conditioning coaches unionize now? And it was an article published on simplyfaster.com if you want to go over there and check it out. And I don't want to butcher uh, the guy's name um, who made the article, uh, but we'll just re refer to him as uh, Flat, so by his last name. And if you want to go to his social media, I have it here on the screen, and it's called at Rugby Strength Coach, so R-U-G-B-Y underscore S-T-R underscore coach c-o-a-c-h if you do want to go and look at his content and look at the article and just see you know what he's about uh, in this case so without further ado i'll go ahead and start us off uh, with the discussion and deep diving into the first uh, section um, of the article titled you know times have changed and so he brings up uh, an interesting point about income inequality. And so he mentioned um, feudalism as a, a reference to, let's say, in historical uh, reference to, let's say, the effects of capitalism and how capitalism may actually be creating this uh, wealth gap and also this income gap. So I provided a resource for you that I'll use uh, as I kind of progress through uh, my talk. And so the picture that I wanted to kind of create that kind of shows this aspect, and actually let me pull it up a little bit. You can, uh, no, I don't see it going up. But anyway, so what I want to kind of create with this picture here is that you see this pyramid. And so if we look at it and try to relate it over to let's say strength and conditioning and the athletic department, based on what he's trying to uh, paint in this uh, notion is that let's say the athletic directors at the top of that pyramid and then you have your sport coaches you know as you move down and then let's say the strength coaches would be at the bottom of that pyramid and that's just denoting what the income gap between and he used the notion of like the ceo to let's say the lowest paid workers like a 221 to one ratio and so i just wanted to show this picture here to try to create uh, some type of visual for you to understand that, okay, we're saying that the athletic directors are disproportionately making more money based on the revenue uh, than, let's say, the strength coaches um, at the bottom who also are not being able to get that because, hey, there's an invisible hand um, in their pocket. And so moving forward, I have this next slide that's pulling up. And so I circled or lined three aspects about the nine myths. And this is the resource that I, or the reference I put in the previous page about, uh, you know, what are some of the preconceived assumptions about the effect of capitalism and how it's affecting, let's say our industry and strength and conditioning coaches uh, specifically. And so the three that I outlined is, you know, is capitalism truly creating this income uh, gap between let's say athletic directors and your sport coaches? 
and um, your strength and conditioning coaches, or is there some other factors that's governing why the income discrepancy is where it is? Uh, there's also the corporations earn obscene profits at the expense of consumers and workers. So in this case, the university, the athletic department, the money that it generates from those revenue sports, or let's say just from the Olympic sports side, is that uh, creating a dynamic that's creating, let's say, this income inequality discrepancy. And so I'll look at that a little bit closer as well. And then the last one, um, number eight, you know, without government protection of labor unions, workers would not obtain a fair wage. And so this is another notion that he brings up in the title of the article, you know, should strength coaches uh, unionize in order to try to uh, make not necessarily make their wages more competitive, but in order to secure a more um, sustainable living wage or just a minimum wage, uh, in that case, uh, as he talked about some financial barriers um, into the field. So as I move forward to discuss um, the next slide, uh, and so he discusses that and again, I'm just using this for historical context to kind of drive the discussion to kind of give you that background first before I really dive into and, and same thing uh, with Coach Edelman. Uh, and so he brings up the Industrial Revolution and he talks about that the Industrial Revolution uh, basically created this area of specialization and also division of labor. And so specialization just meaning that, hey, people can actually focus on particular skill sets and use that to increase their productivity. And that's and the same thing with the division of labor. And so now if you have a bunch of people with this particular skill set, they can now, you know, as a group, then create, let's say, an industry, and they also can sell their uh, services to uh, a particular set of consumers. And so he also brings up technological development, and I'll talk about this later on in my, uh, in my presentation or just on one of the points I'll talk about, is that, interestingly enough, technology has a tremendous effect on the type of skills that are needed and creates a tremendous amount of income inequality as well, because technology always is biased towards a particular skill set. And in this case, we live in, let's say, the third industrial revolution that's more in uh, regards to information technology and in strength and conditioning. This has, uh, in my opinion, a tremendous amount uh, of impact because now, you know, there's a more, there's a need for data analysis, there's a need for research, there's a need uh, for individuals who have uh, abilities to, let's say, use and interact with uh, technologies that can capture biometric data. Uh, and so he mentions, um, and I have it underlined here, that this was the first time the Industrial Revolution was the first time um, that individuals were able to hoard huge sums of wealth and he talked about you know, monopolizing that wealth and he also talking about the increase in uh, income inequality uh, was 100 fold during that period and so I'll, like I said, I'll talk about a little bit more about that in depth as I move forward but some critical aspects that may actually speak to why that was created was because of this notion of division of labor that was dictated by technological um, development or technological progress that allowed one this rapid improvement of industries and in this case he mentioned henry ford uh and capitalism was one reason why that was happening in a free market laissez-faire uh, market structure uh so i'll actually end my notion right here and i'll let coach edelman uh, respond or start off with a point that he wants to go with Appreciate that, Tim. Um, so yeah, Tim, I mean, he was breaking down the whole background of the, the article right there. 
you know, flat when he, when he starts off, he, he begins to talk about how um, he gives us a brief history. He gives us a brief, a brief history of uh, labor laws and workers comp and how those types of things came to be and the abuse of power that these huge monopolized industries used to have over our workers. Um, so again, he talks about the industrial revolution. He talks about these huge companies and basically they, they just had the notion of, um, you know, people are working hard and they wanted fairer wages. They wanted better working conditions, right? And essentially these big uh, organizations, these big companies that a lot of people were in line to work for just said like, oh, you don't like it. Oh, you don't want to do this. Then we got, you know, 20 other people that will, right? And so flat kind of parallels that um, and brings it to today. And one thing he talks about is unregulated, near exploitative work hours, flat or worsening pay, a hugely oversupplied workforce that is easy to fire and replace, and huge income disparity between those at the top and the bottom. Coaches, does that sound familiar, right? And so you take a step back and you go, okay, unionizing was very important for these workers of old who were trying to support their families, right? And needed these jobs um, and, and wanted to work for these big, uh, uh, you know, big well-known organizations. Um, first off, just to kind of support their families, but second off, they wanted to work for the main name. They wanted to work for a company that was highly sought out, right? And they talk about, um, you know, how, because they were such highly sought out jobs, because they were um, big name corporations, that they were able to kind of kick people to the curb. And these, these people ended up um, in a lot of messed up, bad, bad situations due to that, right? And one thing I want to talk about when relating this to strength conditioning, one of my immediate thoughts is strength conditioning jobs in sports, jobs working with teams, especially high level, you know, collegiate programs. Tim has worked at some of the highest level of collegiate baseball. I'm now working at some of the highest collegiate level of collegiate football. These are sought out jobs. You know what I mean? And so when we talk about unionizing, right, and kind of coming up with a way to make workers comp and worker laws more fair, you know, one thing that I think of, and no disrespect to people that work in the union now, you know, I got a lot of good people that I know that work in the union now, but those jobs aren't as highly sought out as a strength conditioning coach's position might be. Everyone wants to work in sports, whether they know what that takes or know what that entails. Um, it, that's a different story. But people want to be affiliated with the big name. They want to be affiliated with the professional teams. They want to be affiliated with the higher level power five conference uh, schools, whether it's, you know, baseball, basketball, football, those are kind of your upper echelon sports, right? And so it's tough to argue or it's tough to say, hey, you know, we should unionize when in reality, the union really occurred or unionizing really was a thing because these are kind of your day-to-day -day responsibilities, your electricians, your plumbers, um, your labor workers, right? Who aren't in these jobs 
because they wanted that to be their careers their whole lives necessarily. The union people that I know, right? And this might be a generalization, right? But the union people I know that work in the union now, again, all great people, all very hardworking, they um, understand that there are already bylaws set in place so they don't get screwed over. And so they want a job like that so they can enter into what they know is going to be a fair opportunity, right? They want to go into a job that will always require somebody to work that job. We always need electricians. We always need people working at houses. We always need people working those union type jobs. So there's a certain amount of security there when you go into a position like that, even if it's not something that you necessarily wanted to do or something that you grew up dreaming about doing since you were young and stuff like that. Whereas being a coach or being in a professional organization or a, a, a high major collegiate organization, those are highly sought out jobs, right? And so for me, it's tough in that regard to say, you know, we want to take these collegiate positions, whether mid-major or upper level, and make them into a union spot or a union job, because these are jobs that people want. These are jobs um, that people are chomping at the bit to get into. Unlike, again, no offense, no disrespect to some of my union workers, some of the best workers, some of the hardest workers I know, but working in athletics is just a little more it's a little more sought out. It's a little more, you know, there's more bells and whistles and kind of glamour and, and gravitas to a responsibility in the job field that that, that entails, right? Um, so, I mean, it's tough when we talk about unionizing in relation to sports or in relation to strength conditioning, just because when I think union jobs, I think of jobs that were being taken, they were taking advantage of their employees, right? But these are also jobs that people were like, you know what, like, I don't, you know, I, I could do something different with my life. I could do something different with my life, right? But they wanted that comfortability. And they, and they rose, to, you know, they came together and they rose up. It was the, the many against the few. It was the poor against the rich. It's a, a story as old as time, right? But, you know, when you take a step back and you parallel that with the field that we're in as a coach, as a sport performance coach, you know, it'd be tough to say like, hey guys, we need to band together and make this more fair for ourselves because ultimately, again, these are highly sought after jobs, right? And if you come and you, you come to your superiors, you know, they might kick you to the curb just as quickly for trying to unionize, right? And I think that's a big fear. Um, I don't know, Tim, you know, what, what do you think about all that, man? Yeah, so you you make a, again a lot of a lot of good points uh, about uh, the context of where unions have thrived. Uh, and so I actually bring up later on um, a couple of examples with, let's say, uh, the unionization of the coal mine industry uh, during uh, during uh, I think the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, maybe a little uh, above that. Uh, and so they were able to secure uh, higher wages, but they end up killing the coal industry because the market reacted uh, in a, we can say in a positive way, because oil then became, uh, it went switched from coal uh, to oil. Uh, and so it, it shifted uh, and generated a high amount of unemployment. 
Um, and so as you kind of alluding to here is that, you know, based on, let's say, uh, a commodity-based business in the sense of coal or oil. And he also, and also have an example, uh, it happened in the metal industry and the steel industry as well, uh, that they went on strike, uh, not strike, but they unionized um, and they tried to secure higher uh, minimum wages and they did, but they end up killing their own industry uh, and they end up generating a high amount of unemployment. And so it's tough to say if, you know, labor, Unions is the way to go, especially in our field where, again, and I kind of go into the oversaturation uh, as I move forward. Now, I'll pull up uh, my next point. Um, but I, I agree that, you know, I'm not sure, historically speaking, if that's the best move. And again, with the oversaturation issue in the case of strength and conditioning, where non-athletes want the jobs just as much as athletes want, let's say, these strength and conditioning spots and even, you know, other aspects in the organization. Um, and so that's another interesting uh, aspect to bring up because it, it kind of alludes to uh, this um parallel between the increases or the new technological innovations. So in this case, uh, new skill sets are now being highly sought after. And uh, we now know that, let's say, these opportunities for people on the outside of sports, let's say, who had nothing to do with, so it doesn't mean they weren't athletes at one point, but let's just say um, that, not, not, I'm not saying that, you know, they'd be taking these jobs for vanity, et cetera. But I'm just saying is it, it has now created more of a competitive environment where now people who are not associated with sports, let's say, you know, a, a mechanical engineer, or let's say a software engineer, let's say someone who, you know, has experience or who has skills in coding. I mean, now with all this data that's being produced in sports, well, that becomes a skill set. And so that those particular need in the industry and the market with all this data being able to be grabbed, well, there's a need for people who can utilize uh, this data and those skill sets, the market will bias towards those skill sets. And so that's why we see, we even see it with the NSCA uh, developing their new certification for sports science. So, you know, a lot of the field is shifting away from, you know, being able, or I'll say the knowledge, skills, and abilities for strength coaches are beginning to, you know, shift uh, to a new paradigm where, you know, if you're not able to, let's say, capture data with some type of tech, or if you're not uh, affluent in using the tech, so KVEST, or whether you're using 4D motion or capturing biomechanical data using GPS, et cetera, which is really the norm um, in football right now from my, my, from my standpoint. Uh, but if you don't have that skill set, you know, that's obviously going to set you on the outside kind of looking in as far as being able to be competitive in the type of market that we live in now. Um, so as I actually, let me pull up my my next slide here. And so what I wanted to show with this slide, actually, let me make this completely full, as you can see. All right, so what I wanted to show this and kind of continue to just paint that picture of, you know, what the income inequality has looked like internationally and just nationally. And again, this is not an economic um, discussion in the sense of, okay, we're going to a tremendous amount of time, but it's really more so to just paint that picture uh, and paint that um, context for us as we kind of uh, narrow the scope and really focus this in uh, on strength and conditioning. And so what I wanted to show here was that as we kind of see the total income that was going to, let's say, the top 1%, so in this case, uh, the wealthy, the rich, uh, for the United States, so in English-speaking countries, and this is on the left side uh, of the, um, of the, uh, the graph, uh, it's more of a U-shape. So it hit 
it began to trend down prior to uh, after World War II. Uh, and then around the 70s and 80s, it was at the lowest of that peak and it began to rise again as we approached 2014. So the share of the amount of income that was going to uh, let's say the wealthy, the rich, and the top 1% was actually on a decline prior to. So it's kind of creating context on well, you know what was happening politically, as I mentioned in number one, that political forces tend to influence the income equality uh, discrepancy. So that would be you know government regulation, policies, law changes, um, et cetera. And it may not actually just be uh, something happening uh, strictly with, you know, the, the rich having their hands uh, in our pockets from that case. And then I also wanted to show on the right hand side, this is Japan and uh, different countries internationally. And you see it's more of an L shape where it was peaked around that World War II uh, mark. And so it's steadily continued to go down, even though it's flatlined a little bit and risen uh, slightly, it still hasn't gotten back up to the level that it was previously, but that's a difference in English uh, speaking uh, countries. And so I just wanted to show here that political forces influence income inequality. Uh, there's also a trend that you know global market forces and technological process, which I'm getting back to, kind of hitting that point uh, over the head, uh, influences this income inequality because you know technology is biased towards particular skill sets. Uh, then lastly, again, political framework uh, will play a role. So again, policies, government regulation, et cetera. So I'll move forward. And this same thing is just showing the same discrepancy that uh, the middle class and uh, let's say the poor middle class, they were actually seeing higher changes in income in the 1980s and that steadily trended downward. And for the 1%, the 99th percentile, it exceptionally, uh, it continued to grow at an exceptional rate that actually outpaced the middle and lower class. And now again, they're seeking the highest um, income differences, in this case, positively speaking, uh, currently in 2020 uh, as we move forward. And so I wanted to show this slide because it um, creates, again, the, the context that uh, technology really uh, creates this great big gap um, in income inequality, or I'll, I'll say that it can create this uh, fluctuation between, you know, what the skill sets were needed for strength and conditioning, let's say 10, 15 years ago, and what are the needs now based on everything that's changed in the market and based on this technological progress. And so if you look at the graph, the, um, the line that has the circles would be the college wage premium. And what the college wage premium is, is that's the amount of money that a college graduate is making versus a high school graduate. And then the triangle, um, which is the relative supply of college skills, shows that this is how many college graduates with this with a particular skill set are in the market. And so you see that the, the amount of money that college students were making or college graduates were making were at, was actually increasing past the uh, actual supply of college graduates who had, let's say, a particular skill. And so this was actually during the time um, of, uh, a, of the second industrial revolution. So in this case, when computers were instituted in the workforce. So in this case, computers being on the job now as a skill that you need created a bias towards uh, unskilled workers. And in this case, let's say high school graduates who didn't have any computer uh, I'll say uh, computer uh, skills in the sense of working with computers, there was a bias. So you see the income inequality can happen. So this is the only thing that I wanted to show uh, with this uh, graph was that, that again, skills tend to be biased by response to the market 
political forces and again, uh, to technological progress. And we're in a rapid uh, progress um, in this case as well. And so uh, I also wanna touch on uh, briefly, and he mentions, and uh, Coach Edelman actually goes into this uh, quite a bit, uh, is that basically the bottom is, um, the bottom in this case, let's say strength coaches or in just in general, um, where unions have been created, they're suffering disproportionately in wages, uh, in hours worked, uh, and then, you know, it's just exploitative practices. Uh, and so I, I want to kind of create, again, the, and I'm looking at this from both sides because I've been there and done that. And I'm going through the process of being an intern and having to work for free. And I've only been able to make that happen by, you know, living with one of my friends that I played baseball with in, uh, in college uh, and being able to make that a reality. And same thing when I was a GA uh, as well. You know, I, I had to just, you know, break the bank in order to make these things uh, happen. And at that point, it was just something that I had to do. Um, and so what I want to create is that, you know, is capitalism is the way that the market is set up is that's what's really causing, you know, strength coaches to not being able to get a bigger piece of that pie. Uh, and also, you know, talking about this notion of, you know, there's no benefits, the poor working conditions. Uh, and again, I know it's a discrepancy between, let's say, we're talking about the NAI level, JUCO really depends on level, et cetera, but just creating more um, clarity and awareness um, around those. And he didn't necessarily mention, because he said that he used the example that the 40 hour weeks, uh, is a joke, and, and again, obviously, uh, in the <laughs> sense that, <laughs> and obviously, in the sense that, I mean, come on, we 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 do know for a fact um, that again, that, that that's just not the case, especially in season when you're traveling full time and stuff is ramping up, et cetera, as peak. Um, but like I said, uh, I'll let Coach Edelman, you know, jump back in and then throw his two cents back in there. Uh, but my last aspect is that you know, is the income mobility? Excuse me, I want to set the I guess the plate for what I'll talk about kind of going forward is that you know is is the strength coach restricted to a set amount of income so is there, is there no income mobility based on experiences and gaining new skills uh, and so if the answer is no then again we have really nothing to talk about and of course everything he's saying then we need to find a way in order to you know to fight for higher wages but the answer is yes then I'll present, you know, more material on how is that possible? And is the situation that we're currently in more of a response to where the market is going in the sense of what type of skill makes you more competitive to get those wages, uh, to get what we're talking about, we can get through a labor union without actually having to unionize. Yeah, man, I think the biggest thing, Tim, and you touched on it quite a bit, especially at the beginning there is like the wage gap, right? And so yeah. you got you know, especially with your, with your higher sports, your footballs and your basketballs, um, whether that's professionally or at the NCAA level, Tim and I uh, have mainly worked at the NCAA, the collegiate level. So we'll be re referencing that more so than anything, especially when it comes to the strength coach side of things, but you have these, these million dollar head coaches. And then you have, you know, again, like what was it? It was a uh, uh, hundred to one or two hundred to one or something like that. Was kind of the wage gap, like on Wall Street and back. Yeah, they said two hundred and twenty to one. Right. So I mean, like there is a way without fighting for our rights as strength coaches and banding together and you know, kind of going on strike or whatever that would look like. You know, there is a way to kind of break down your organization so that you know, more people 
are just getting kind of smaller pieces of that pie as opposed to, you know, your head guy getting the biggest piece of the pie by far and then having interns and unpaid workers go hungry, right? With no pie, with the, with, without even the crumbs, Tim, you know what I'm saying? So, so, yeah. I, so my thing is, I think there's a way to restructure, not necessarily unionize, but restructure from within these organizations. And obviously this is much easier said than done. Obviously this is way different from, you know, your D3 all the way up to your, uh, high major D ones. Right. But one thing I want to talk about, uh, what flat says, and this is a direct quote from, from the, from the article is we see again and again, that winning organizations are filled with people who love to work there and whose core members often remain in place for years before success, um, arrives. Winning organizations don't change the seats on the bus every 12 to 24 months. Well, people when it, your, your head coach is driving the thing, right? Or your AD or whoever we want to kind of refer to in this case, right? Maybe you got your AD driving your head coach back there directing him, telling him where to go and things like that, right? And then you got people who didn't even get on the bus and they got to walk to the spot. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. tough because you have people in these situations who want to be a, they want a piece of the pie. They want to be on the bus, whatever analogy you want to use. Um, and they actually are being invited to do so like, Hey, come work for us for free. And, you know, basically we'll take all your hard work and tell somebody else about how hard you work and get you into another position or less likely, but also happens is these people kind of come in. They're not getting any pie. They're not on the bus. Right. But they kind of work their way up into getting a slice, a really, really small slice, but they work their way into getting a slice and then they can get a bigger piece of the pie the longer that they're kind of around. Right. And so one thing I wanted to talk about, and this is from my guy, Byron Gerardo, who I worked with at Tennessee. He's now um, at South Carolina with their football program. He's a South Carolina alum. Really happy for him that he's out there and doing his thing in his, in his hometown state. But one thing that he brought up, right, is traditionally on a football staff in NCAA, you have five, you have five dudes. You have five full-time staff workers. You have your head guy who's usually like a director, and then you have your assistant director, and then you have like an associate director, you know, I mean, the titles, you know, it's a bunch of BS, you know, they're all over the place with, you know, titles and labels and things like that. But anyway, so my guy, Coach B, basically said, well, instead of five, why don't I take like three or four, right? And then my interns, GAs, part-time coaches, they can be all kind of under the umbrella of the pay wage for like that fourth or fifth guy, right? So let's say there's like 250 to be spread around to everybody on staff. Okay, head man gets 150. Next guy gets like 75 to 85. Next guy gets, you know, about the same. And then the people under that, right? You have like three people then splitting like an 80,000 or a 75,000 dollar thing right and so for three part-time workers to get 20 to 25,000 I mean that's not bad and that's much better than what you'd what you'd see um, nowadays sometimes even for people that are uh, considered full-time right so 
I mean, again, this is, I mean, it's tougher to, to me to use that exact example just because, you know, we're talking about an SEC school that has a lot of resources, right? Whether that's Tennessee or South Carolina or my guy coach B's at now, okay? And we're talking about areas of the country that are very affordable to live in, such as Tennessee, South Carolina, really most places in the South, right? So that being said, that is a viable example, a viable thought that coaches have kind of come together, coaches that aren't necessarily full-time, but coaches that have been at the bottom, made their way through the mud up to the top, right? And they kind of understand like, hey, this is, this is, you know, uh, sorry, I was about to cuss right there, but you know, this is BS. You know what I mean? This is, uh, we got these kids coming in from college, you know, as unpaid interns or graduate assistants, working their butts off, not getting nearly what they deserve, right? Like, why don't I take away that fifth person, right? And just have my three to four interns kind of split that amongst themselves so they don't have to go to their support system. So they don't have to go to their family. So they don't have to go to their grandparents or friends or whatever, you know, wherever, wherever people are kind of getting their support from, you know? So for me, when I was starting out, like it was my mom and dad kind of helped me here and there until I worked my way up into that, into that paid, into that paid role. Right. Um, and it's tough too, because in that regard, right. Kind of taking this in a different direction, it makes it so, and again, this is, uh, something that, that flat talks about our, and this is a direct quote from the article. Our field is missing out on the talents of potentially huge numbers of bright, hardworking, but poor coaches who simply can't afford to enter the workforce An organized movement of coaches can work with the governing bodies and the institutions to lower the financial barriers of entry. The creation of a parallel career path, such as a nationally recognized paid apprenticeship, would be one option, would be a, a viable option, right? So unionizing could be the answer, right? But it's hard for me and Tim and the dude over at... Um, uh, uh, Maryville College, and then the dude over at some other school in Tennessee, right? It's, it's tough for us to all get together and kind of come up with a game plan, right? So I think what it really boils down to is we need to change not kind of externally, but internally, right? There needs to be a change from within, okay? And I mean, again, that could be something as simple as what my guy Coach B is talking about and kind of restructuring your staff and restructuring the, the, where the money to these staff members would go, you know what I mean? And so, um, and again, just kind of touching on the socioeconomic aspect of that, like you do, and I've worked with, and I'm sure you have too, Tim worked with good dudes, good coaches, men and women that deserve a place at the table, deserve to have, you know, a little bit of more money and a little more respect to their name because they're working their butts off and they're good coaches. Right. And again, socioeconomically, that's going to come back to a bunch of different things too, as far as who kind of fits traditionally and research-based speaking into those socioeconomic pockets. Right. So are we taking away some of our minority coaches, especially off the jump from some of these positions by not creating paid positions? You know what I mean? Um, I could go way further into that. Uh, I'm going to get off my soapbox for a little bit, though, Tim. I know you got a lot to say, um, you know, and, and feel, <laughs> free to kinda, feel free to go off that. Um, 
But yeah, man, I mean, I really think that, you know, unionizing could be a great answer, but it is very hard to do. It is very hard for us to get together and really decide what is best. And people are going to have different opinions across the spectrum about what is best for who, right? And so I really think the internal processes, the internal makeups and infrastructures of these organizations and programs are going to be where you get the, or you can elicit the most change, right? And that's going to be someone standing up for you too. Um, You know, that's going to be, you know, because if you go as a low level worker to your higher up and you start saying like, hey, I think things need to be more adjusted. I think things aren't quite fair. Then you just come off as you're complaining. You know what I mean? Then you just kind of come off as like the guy who's not grateful for what they have. And I think that's where a lot of strength coaches in this industry, men and women alike, kind of get deterred from wanting to stand up for themselves because then you're kind of viewed as soft or you're viewed as not a grinder. You know what I mean? So it, you know, we, it's gotta be this responsibility of creating a change internally needs to be put on our higher ups, whether it's a head ball coach, whether it's a head strength coach, whether it's the athletic director, right. Or what about our governing bodies, Tim? What about NS, uh, NSCA? What about CSCCA? You know what I mean? Like, how come they're not standing up? And, and I think that's one thing that Flat kind of refers to in his article as well, is, you know, how come these people aren't kind of coming to the table and saying, like, you know what, things aren't fair. We're the governing bodies of these positions. Uh, you know, we're the licensing body of these, these positions that people are stepping into. Why aren't we kind of uh, trying to help the little man, you know? Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it could, it's, it's a sticky situation. There's a lot of different ways you can kind of go about it and dissect it and break it down. Um, and I'll get into that more here in a little bit. Tim, I, I'd like to kind of hear your thoughts on some of that. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on uh, the other things that you were talking about in regards to uh, wage gaps and things like that amongst our higher ups and, and the little man. Uh, yeah, no, man, you, I mean, I, I got so I mean, I got a super highway of notes, uh, stuff you put down there that I'm literally going to touch on. Um, and so uh, to kind of move forward uh, and, and actually, actually, let, let, let me work backwards really quick. And, and I, I completely agree. And, and you brought up the example of, you know, if you were allotted a, a certain amount of money, let's say for staff and, and being able to pay staff and, you know, and again, all strength coaches understand this is probably, you know, universal in, in many different uh, professions about the political nature uh, of being in the field. Uh, and so, again, it's all about networking. We all know this. And this is why most of us, if not all of us, make the sacrifices up front to work for free and to, you know, do all these, let's say, uh, crazy things that, don't, you know, may be counterintuitive to just logical uh, rationale. Is so that you can get a good word put on your name and it can open up. Uh, so basically the upfront sacrifices, you know, kind of create for planting seeds that can turn into some professional harvesting uh, later on. And so the, the, and I guess my point is, is that, you know, let's say if a union was created and we did secure higher wages, how does that affect and again, and I use, and he actually brings up, and I'll talk about this later, but he actually brings up like the NFL's uh, Players Association. Uh, and so how much have, you know, they done been a benefit to, you know, players, veterans who are already, you know, uh, and have done, you know, they've spent their time um, and, and collecting 
that experience um, in the league and how much has it really affected the rookies who are coming in and, you know, trying to get their feet wet and also trying to, you know, get security uh, as much as they can and create a situation uh, that's not, again, so hell-bent, you know, and not wouldn't say destructive. But, I, again, I'll say that how much of a benefit has went to the veterans in this case for strength and conditioning, you know, how many of the benefits to the union would go to those who have already kind of put their time into and then what would be the trade-offs uh, for the interns and uh, the the new the newbies, the novices, the new coaches trying to come into the field, uh, because you know, kind of what history shows is that you know when that wage uh, gets in- increasing or when the wage uh, let's say reaches a new level, that it prices out those inexperienced and I won't say unskilled, but those inexperienced um, workers. Uh, and I think skills and experience are are basically synonymous uh, with each other. And so it, in my opinion, it would create, and historically speaking, it would create less opportunities for a Tim Smith to break into the field, you know, and for yourself as well to break into the field because no one would, for, for sure, no one would be willing to pay you anything because they would have to, at a minimum, pay you, let's say, let's say it went up to $20 an hour. You know, they're not going to pay an intern $20 an hour. Uh, they're just not going to do it. And so if they were, then it may be a part-time position. It may be, hey, you can only show up for 10 hours a week because we just can't have you on the clock, you know, longer than that. And so in my opinion, it would create some type of uh, disparities for um, the incoming group of coaches who truly, you know, want to get in the field and who truly need to get in the field and get and be around coaches who have obviously uh, have networks and can put that good word in form uh, and can create, let's say, some of that uh, trajectory that they see once we take these internships and we kill them and we do very well uh, at them. So that's one aspect uh, I wanted to touch on there. And let me pull up my slide really quick. And so moving forward with, with mine, and so you, you brought up the governing bodies. And so to try to understand this field saturation, and we already kind of talk about, talked about that, just the nature of strength and conditioning and having a certification process uh, that basically people, you know, anybody, it's fair game for who could get these jobs. And so I kind of showed that, well, while the barrier of entry, as far as what type of education you need, as far as the certification goes, um, what keeps those from really getting these positions is the political nature of it. So hey, if I don't know you, like, I mean, it's just no shot you're going to get this. If you don't know anybody in the field, I mean, the chances that you'll actually get uh, a job or even get an interview, I mean, it's slim to none. Like, it's, it's just not happening um, in that case. So a lot of these jobs are on referrals um, for the most part. And so that kind of really self-governs itself and kind of keeps those on the outside, really on the outside, because uh, you, you just won't get it without a reference uh, in that case. And so I wanted to show that, you know, if the, the wages are flattening and if it is caused to an oversaturation of, let's say, people who are now able to get these jobs, creating more competition and competition in the sense that, hey, they're willing to take less money. So in this case, hey, I'll take the person who will take less money in all cases. And so I look at the CS, uh, CS uh, pass rates or the exam statistics. They don't have it uh, set out comprehensively like the CSCCA does. But since the rule in 2015 was passed where uh, at the division one level that all strength coaches had to have an accredited certification, the pass rates have went up uh, 
with the CSCS. So it went from 55% in 2016. So a year after the rule was instituted up to 63%. Um, and so I'm not sure if this actually plays a part uh, and this is on the first attempt as well, but I'm not sure if this is actually creating more coaches who are now battling for the same spot, because we do know university jobs just at the division one level for sure, aren't just opening up in the sense that new jobs are good creating. So staffs are expanding. So for instance, let's say is the university of Washington expanding their strength and conditioning staff from five to 10, you know, over a 20 year period. No, I mean, they pretty much are fixed. And so there's also there's always a scarcity of those positions, there's always going to be more coaches uh, oversupplied anyway. So I think the nature, the innate nature of it is it's always going to be more coaches than jobs available at the division one level. And we can continue to talk about uh, at all levels, but we can go forward um, from there. And so he also brings up a point um, about in this uh, excerpt that I have that a colleague told me that the same job he did for one organization 20 years ago now pays 50% less more. Uh, and he was accounting for inflation. And he also talked about himself as well that in 2010, um, he knows multiple coaches um, that who had, you know, two degrees and who had, you know, copious amounts of student debt looming over their head were only making $15,000 a year at the division one. Um, level. And I'll talk about that a little bit more going forward as well as my slide shifts over. And so then I wanted to use the CSCCA and what their past fill rates have been to try to create. Um, and, and actually what I'll say about the CSCCA really quick is that they only do, they only initiate or institute one test per year, but the maximum um, capacity for the amount of people that can take the test at 200 individuals. So they're only passing a max of 200 people per year anyway. So, mm. so the effect that of their pass rate going up, which it has since 2015, the rule went from 52% in 2015, and it fluctuated before then, uh, up to 68%. So basically the trend has went higher as well. They're passing more applicants as well. And so again, is it just, you know, coincidence that these pass rates have went up since the institution of this hey maybe they want more individuals in those positions with the cscca or same thing with the nsca do they want more people holding cscs as well their credential uh going into these jobs as well because again you know for licensing purposes uh but again i just wanted to create that context there and then also uh, moving forward, looking at the statistics from the U.S. Bureau of Labor uh, st statistics. Um, so strength and conditioning um, is classified within coaches and scouts. And so, you know, there's and again, I don't know what the actual percent for strength and conditioning is um, as relation to the employment change or the, the increase in jobs within the sports market uh, of thirty four thousand three hundred. But for the most part, it's saying that our field is growing in a positive direction that's higher than the average, uh, you know, industry or average field of choice at about 12 percent. So it's, it's growing rapidly uh, and more jobs are being created as well. And so, again, it's just trying to create the narrative that, you know, is uh, this field saturation really an issue? And if jobs are pretty much fixed, let's say at the Division One level, what about opportunities? And again, if it's a discussion about the division one level, then that's a whole different story that, of course, it's always going to be scarcity. It's always. And that's like the first rule of economics. Anyway, there'll never be enough supply to meet the demand. So in this case, there'll never be enough division one power five jobs to supply the demand of people who actually want to fit those needs or fit those jobs uh, in, in that case. Uh, and so moving forward, I wanted to show this next slide um, that. 
basically about the pay gap and let's say the wages flattening for strength and conditioning. And so uh, the only thing I wanted to highlight here was that in 2013, let's say the average annual salary was 37,000, but this is highly dependent on geographical location that uh, Coach Edelman actually uh, alluded to that it's different. And so they use the example of the District of Columbia in Pennsylvania. And also what's dependent on determining salary is the level upon which you work it. So are you a mid-major D1? Are we talking about power five D1? Are we talking about a mid-major in let's say California versus a power five as he kind of discussed um, in Texas or a power five in uh, South Carolina, et cetera. Uh, and so, he pulled uh, the same statistics from the, the labor uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor and showed that from 2010 to 2020, there was an expected 29 percent of, of increase in jobs available, uh, which is a 14 percent rate that's higher than the national average uh, there. So, again, based on what this is saying is that there are other variables determining what the pay gap is. And again, is it a very black and white or a one size fits all approach? Not necessarily because it determines, are you with a revenue sport? Are you with an Olympic sport? Uh, again, where location are you? What level are you coaching at? And then I'll continue to get on the skills, uh, the knowledge and abilities that shape this as well. Uh, and so on this next slide, what I wanted to get, and this actually points to what I just said. Uh, and so we use the example that I've mentioned already that 221 to one ratio between the top. And we'll say this is for, let's say, uh, the athletic director, and I won't say the athletic director's salary is 221 to one. I won't say that, but it may be, it, it could be. Um, but what I went and pulled was, and I'll actually show this um, after I pass it and get back to myself uh, after I let Coach Edelman kind of uh, speak on uh, what I said is that I looked at if we account for um, entering a position first year, you know, same thing. And we compare an AD in their first year of their position and a first year strength coach. I wanted to see what the discrepancy was. And in my opinion, we're evaluating apples to oranges anyway, because if you think about an athletic director, they, this may be their first year as an athletic director, but they come in with experience, either teaching or coaching. And so their median income is 50,000 and, you know, point five, so 50 point five, so basically 50,000. And for first year strength coaches, the median was about 38,000. And so what we do know about a lot of strength coaches and, and, and again, and it didn't necessarily classify, actually I'll say full-time positions that first year for a full-time position, you know, how much of, how much experience is coming in? And secondly, what is the age between the two? And I'll show that later on as well, because that's going to dictate the difference in pay uh, between the AD and the strength coach, because the AD on average is older when they enter those positions. They're in their 40s, normally in their 30s and 40s. And for the most part, most of them are in their 40s when they hit these positions. And strength and conditioning coaches tend to be 20 to 30 years old when they hit. So you talk about, let's say, at the low end for a strength and conditioning coach, you're 20 years old versus a first year athletic director who's 40, they have 20 years of working experience. And it may be experience specifically in uh, let's say sport, then a strength coach coming in, let's say uh, at the same point in time in experience. Uh, and so that creates, and again, the gap is only, you know, $12,000 from a median standpoint, but that could actually speak to the difference in income between, let's say, people at the top of the athletic department and strength coaches when you weigh their uh, age, skill sets, uh, experience, work time, working consecutively. So turnover is another key part here. 
Um, and so I'm just creating context around, again, I'm not defending the position, but I'm creating context that is there more to this than we're actually not accounting for uh, to kind of move forward. And so I'll actually switch it back over and let uh, Coach Edelman kind of respond based on what I said uh, and, and move, yeah, move from there. What you think? Tim, so let me, let me ask you something. Would unionizing or having a strength conditioning, sport performance, again, whatever BS label you want to put on it, would it make it more competitive for people coming in? Like, like when we talk about saturation and things like that, would unionizing make the quality of employee higher? Can you give me, just give me your thoughts on that really quick. Cause I, I'm. From what uh, I yes. So I would. Oh, you can go. You can go. No, no, no. So I was going to say is from what I understand it would, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. So in my, from what I've seen is that unionizing will hurt those entering the field more than it would do good. So the trade-off, so it's a trade-off here. And so as we kind of talked about, you know, there's really no solutions. There's only trade-offs. So if we secure a labor union and get, let's say a higher living wage or minimum wage, it will affect those coming into the field more. And so therefore it may actually drive unemployment in a negative direction, because if I have to now pay, let's say people, let's say it's people who are already in the field, if I now have to pay you more, I'm now either going to shrivel up jobs because we're just not going to allocate more budget, uh, let's say, to the to the uh, strength conditioning. In this case, you actually may see staff shrink. So that could be one negative effect. And secondly, uh, it actually may price out, let's say, a second year strength coach. If they're like, hey, I'm, we're just not going to pay you, you know, uh, what this new minimum wage is. You know, you're going to be out of a job. We're just not going to be able to do it. Then, again, same thing there. You're going to price out newbies and you're going to price out people uh who may not again have enough experience or the skill sets to you know justify this increase and so it's the same thing that's seen like at mcdonald's if mcdonald's raised their you know their minimum wage or if the minimum wage weighs you know basis must be talked about now if the minimum wage was increased then it would price out a lot of those high schoolers that they hire it would price out people who don't have let's say college degrees etc they wouldn't be able to you know work at uh, McDonald's because McDonald's would have to, you know, cut the amount of money they're uh, spending on salaries because they have to make the difference up by somewhere. And nine times 10 will be by cutting jobs in that case. And so I think this would be the same case with the labor union. It would end up cutting jobs and then pricing those out who want to get in. And because there will be no free opportunities there. So in order to make yourself, if there was a union, a strength conditioning union, for whatever reason, in order to make yourself a more viable candidate coming in, that would just mean more experience, like maybe in your undergrad. And that would mean having uh, your N or your CSCS and your CC, uh, CSCCA and uh, your FMS level one and the so would it make it so the licensing and certification and experience would need to be, you know, kind of there in order for you to enter? Does that make sense um, in order to make you like a more viable candidate for a paid position right away? Yeah. And so, well, the, the governing bodies would have to change the way they implement because currently, you know, let's say for the CSCS, you can't get the certification until you graduate. Uh, in the CSCCA, you can't get the certification until you have 640 hours of interning under an approved CSCCA coach. Right. So while it does add more rigor, in my opinion, to the certification by, hey, you have to have this 
amount of education before you can even be qualified or up or a candidate for the um, for the certification. But in, in my opinion, it works the opposite because you can't you won't be able to intern in college at a university where the rule is you have to have this certification. So the point being is, and I actually kind of go with this as well, is that in the long run, the certifications or the licensure really only affects positively the governing bodies because right. now it becomes the gold standard. You have to have this in order. So they have secure, you know, consumer base. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, go, going forward because it's a mandatory rule now. And so this is kind of what I was talking about, how rules and regulations and policies, they look they look and they sound good symbolically, but in the real world, they actually have the opposite effect because at this point, you know, which has been, you know, as you kind of know, some of the, the basis of what my research has been in my, uh, my PhD and my master's uh, yep. program is that what is the best way to try to create and get more experience while you're in school, you know, trying to hit two birds with one stone. So when you come out, you've already had work experience versus, Hey, I graduate. Now I have to start this process of working for free, et cetera. But the way that the rules and the certifications are set up, uh, especially at the D one level, that's just not possible because in college, you wouldn't be able to have the prerequisites to get the certification. And so it hurts your mobility and what you can do while you're in school with trying to do both trying to get work experience in the college sector and i bring this up too because if you look at a lot of the job descriptions what do they ask for in experience they don't ask for hey you have two years of experience coaching people in general they yeah. say two years of experience or x amount of years of experience in a collegiate environment you have to have worked a job similar to this at the same not the same level but you would have had to work in a college environment and that's impossible uh if 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 the standard is or if the rule is you have to have the certification to do it because at that point it'd be malpractice and and, and i'm gonna say malpractice but um and it also would trickle down now you know it's not a mandatory rule i haven't seen it but it's not a mandatory rule at say the juco naia um division one division two division three but but just because they don't have the rule doesn't mean they're not they're going to be biased towards the certifications they may say hey we would like for you to have this cert and what if you don't have it does that actually lower your chances of getting that job probably so right well okay so i mean it, it's the system the system i mean the system would not allow and benefit a true union is kind of what like I was getting at earlier. And I just needed you to kind of like help me along with that thought a little bit. You know what I mean? That's kind of like what I'm thinking. Um, yeah. That unionizing could potentially hurt more. Or there's more, you know, there's less benefits. It's less beneficial than one might think. Um, Again, man, I don't think it's an external issue. I think it's an internal issue. And I think, you know, I think like, like Flat mentions in his article, I think there are schools that take advantage and abuse the young entry-level workers that are coming in trying to make a name for themselves um, because they know that they can exploit them a little bit. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and so like kind of, as you kind of talk about the system, let's say being uh, flawed, uh, or it's, it already has this exploitation kind of built into it because you couldn't exploit, let's say, the intern if the intern was able to get the experience in college. Because so what I would say is in in like a, a common economist, uh, uh, Thomas Sowell, 
would say, and he's talking about, you know, like the 1930s. And he, uh, his first job as a 16 year old um, was basically, you know, delivering telegrams. So he was working at Western Union and he was getting paid, uh, I think like in that time, it was, it was like once in an hour or something, something like that, because there was no minimum wage. And so he could get paid anything. But he said that now that I kind of look back at it in hindsight, he was like, I mean, I'm surprised that I was getting that because, I mean, I'm surprised that my boss. He's, and so he let me take a step back. So he thought that he was like, yeah, man, my, you know, basically my boss, you know, was, was really on me. You know, he thought his boss was, you know, kind of pushy. And so he said that, well, now, now that I kind of look back on that, he was like, I mean, I'm surprised he was able to put up with my incompetence. Cause I mean, there's no way he would pay me more for my skill sets because I had to learn on the job. And so I did a lot of dumb things. Uh, and he just would not have, if the, if he had to pay me a minimum amount of money, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had a job from that case. And so, and again, I'm using a 16-year-old, but I'm just trying to create the, the picture here right. is that um, because, let, let's say, you're pricing out, let's say, these individuals, if we did start a union and get that minimum wage, interns, without a shadow of a doubt, would have to work for free in order to get in the field. It, it, it wouldn't even be, you know, a discussion of, all right, is there a way that we can create? If it's a minimum, they for sure would be able to get uh, anything secured. So I don't care if it's 10000 or a stipe, a small stipend or whatever it is, that that wouldn't be possible. And so a lot of the benefits uh, historically that come from unions tends to be socially based. So in this case that, you know, it doesn't actually really have a huge amount of positive economic practical uh, positive, um, you know, effects on the actual labor union. Um, it tends to be more social in nature. And a lot of the negative effects do happen economically and financially in the sense of less jobs, higher unemployment, and does it really drive any economic growth within that actual industry? Uh, and it tends to be no uh, from international, just again, economic history internationally uh, in other countries, such as again, Asia and England and London. And also yeah, we can see it, we can see it in uh, Venezuela, you know, right now uh, with the, econ the communist economy they have running uh, currently. Uh, and so this is just what we've seen or just what's happened. And I think that again, it would price those individuals out. And there's no way, I mean, I'm thinking about it too, as you're saying that, like, there's no way that you could really, you know, internally speaking, right? If you, um, if you did try and make the wage gap closer between the highest, let's say your head ball coach and an entry level position, um, which like you said, wouldn't even really, couldn't really even be an intern, Right. So let's just say it's your lowest full-time person. And then you lower the, 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 the salary of the head coach to appease and kind of make better the benefits and position for the lower level positions. Then you're going to have coaches that don't want to play at that school because they can make more at another school. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's all, it's all over the place, man. You know what I mean? And it's just tough because I think the, you know, something needs to happen internally, but it somehow needs to happen internally. You know, like we just need to decide as administrators at these high level universities, professional teams that um, there needs to be less funds kind of allocated to the, the head coach and kind of more distributed to the, to the others, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, actually, let me pull it up. Uh, and go but so yeah I, I proposed not proposed but I was kind of alluding that was he suggesting that there should be a salary cap 
let's say there's a salary cap on, you know, what a head coach can make. Uh, and I, and I kind of allude to this as well. And I kind of ask myself, you know, why do we have, let's say a certain, why before 2015, I mean, college sports were, you know, clearly around before then, but why in 2015 was that rule, you know, implemented? Right. And so you have to ask yourself the question is that, you know, and again, I don't know what the data or the statistics say, is, statistics, um, say but if the rule was in there to protect, protect the athletes and when I mean protect the athletes and protect university I'm saying is that do we think that if universities did not have this rule that they would basically say all right we don't we don't care about player safety we don't care about finding qualified candidates we'll just take anybody you know we'll take Joe Doe you know uh, Joe Dirt off the street and make him our strength coach because hey we don't have any rules and regulations that are dictating who you know who we have to screen and what type of knowledge base and i say this is because just because you have the certification does that still save you from malpractice or you know training that's not efficacious training that again is not efficient and again does stuff that would not be a benefit to the athlete in the sense of preventing injuries and etc uh without because nine times out of ten what does a lot of that malpractice happen if it does happen, it, it tends to come from the sport. It tends to come from the sport coaches, you know, punishment runs and using things as punishment, you know, that could lead to, let's say, you know, uh, malpractice um, tends to come from the sport coaches. I mean, we, we've all been there, done that with, all right, go, yeah, come on coach. You know, you, you're trying to run them in the ground, literally, like you literally trying to run them, yeah. you know, into grades, et cetera. And so, you know, the, the point in my opinion, you know, why hasn't there been stricter, if there were going to be rules in place, why hasn't there been stricter, more enforced rules on the type of qualifications and education that sport coaches have to have versus, oh, you know, we're going to make sure our strength coaches have this checkpoint, this checkpoint, our athletic trainers got to have this, this, you know, these certifications, their certification bodies, et cetera, have to be very rigorous sports medicine, et cetera. But the only person, the only individual in this triad that appears to not be under the microscope and to not have to have some type of prerequisite of knowledge other than, you know, a, a network popularity or some social aspect is the sport coaches. And they're the ones who obviously run the biggest risk mm. in this case. And so that that's kind of where I would go, you know, with that is that, you know, if, if there were going to be something put in place, why hasn't it been put with the sport coaches when a lot of these issues don't come from the support staff? A lot of the stuff doesn't come from the nutritionists and the sports site. Uh, you know, all this nonsense that we talk about that we see in the public, uh, you know, on media, et cetera. It tends to be the sport coaches. But, but, but who is the first one to always give? Who's the first one that's always on the chopping block? You right. know, in the media. Oh, you know, University of Michigan just fired the strength coach. They're turning over the whole strength program. It wasn't, we all know it wasn't the strength coach, but right. normally they're, you know, normally strength coaches are the first line of firings. And, it, you know, it, it'll show you that, hey, you know, the head coach, he must be under some pressure. So he's going to try to turn over his staff. And normally, hey, we get a new strength coach. It was a strength program. Instead of, no, hey, no, that's not it. We know that's not it. It's nonsense. They're the first ones to go in a lot of those cases because they're supposed yeah. to be responsible for like the culture and things like that. You know what I mean? They're, they're supposed to be responsible for kind of the, the makeup and DNA and the, you know, uh, the grit of the group, you know? And so, you know, if you, if you have a team that's not up to snuff, it's not winning games and stuff. A lot of the time you say like, ah, cause we're, you know, our strength coach isn't getting us right mentally and physically, you know what I mean? So um, I think that's sometimes why they succumb to, 
that wrath from your from your higher ups more often. You know what I mean? But yeah, and I agree because how much of you know that would change if a prerequisite like in let's say the Soviet Union or the German Democratic Republic to be a sport coach, you gotta have your PhD. You have to have, you know, you would have to have a PhD in that particular sport. So, you know, if that was actually a criteria, you didn't even have to have a certification. But what if you had uh, an education standard? Hey, in order to be a coach, uh, you know, University of Washington, you know, baseball or University of Washington football, the head coach would have had to have, you know, a PhD in uh, pedagogy, you know, in actually coaching. Let's say they had a PhD in coaching. Yeah. You know, that, that would change. It would change the game. Right. And you actually may save a lot of this. And the point being is, would you really pay? that head coach and actually I say I say this too because because it's not in my opinion it's not and it's interesting dynamics with economics just in general because it's not necessarily oh you know the sport coaches you know has something about them you know that makes um it's something about their skill set that makes them worth 40 million dollars it's not that it's what universities are willing to pay for in order for the return in revenue that this coach may generate by, as you kind of talked about wins and losses, if coach, you know, if Jim Harbaugh is going to increase our ticket sales, <clears throat> he's definitely worth $40 million. If we want to pay him $40 million, because that 40 million is going to return us. If it returns us, let's say a couple of billion, then it, you know, it wasn't even a, a, a question on why we would sign him and bring him on for whatever reason. And so, if we look at the return and investment on these high risk, you know, big, big purchases, I mean, you know, how much, how much money or how many dollars is a strength coach really turning into, you know, if you have them on your tennis team, you know, is this strength coach going to make back their salary and the amount of uh, revenue that tennis is going to generate? Cause no, because we know in 2020, you know, when COVID hit that a lot of these Olympic teams were uh, up on the chopping blocks to be, you know, basically uh, their cases closed as far as operating as teams, because most of them are operating at deficits. And so, you know, and this is stuff we'll talk about, uh, you know, in, in future podcasts, et cetera, but it just brings up a lot of discussions and a lot of truth begins to be, you know, uh, re released or kind of surfaces to the top of the waters. Um, because uh, again, you know, what is that returning value? They're telling you what they value was said based on what they're willing to pay us. And they say, Hey, I mean, to be honest, we're losing by having an extra staff member, but we do win in areas of recruiting and how much of, you know, hiring a strength coach for tennis is to really appease, let's say uh, the tennis coach to say, Hey, we, you know, we do care about tennis, you know, we, so we want to show you that we care by giving you a strength coach, but that strength coach is also going to have, you know, six other teams as well. So <laughs> And, and, the, and the point being is, is how much of it is it really? Because if the universities didn't have to, I get, in my opinion, they wouldn't even have. They, they'd have two strength coaches, hey, one for football, one for basketball. And if baseball is a revenue sport, like, let's say, at Vanderbilt, then we have one for Vanderbilt. Uh, but in my opinion, those teams, as most of them do, they pay for their own guys. Yeah. Like at University of Washington before, you know, Todd was there. Um, they were, they paid for their own, you know, out of the basketball budget, they were paying for their strength guy. It wasn't, he wasn't, uh, paid by, um, the, uh, the strength and conditioning department or like strength and conditioning was the Olympic sports department. He was paid by basketball. Same yeah. thing, you know, when I was at, uh, Purdue and et cetera, um, is that a lot of these guys, they're not paid by the actual, um, they're paid by the teams. And right. I, I guarantee you, if if it could go that route, that's what. If, if Dennis had to pay out of their budget for a strength coach, they say, oh, man, no, nah, we, we can't afford to pay for a strength coach. We want to put that money elsewhere. 
I hope not. I hope they would realize that we play an important <laughs> role, you know? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, I, I completely agree. And so, yeah, for me, like, if I kind of go in, so what I wanted to show here, like really quick was just, again, what the average salary was that the salary for strength coaches has went up based on years of experience. But we see that it's not a huge, you know, it's not a huge income increase. Like you go from 39,000 from your first year and we're talking about 20 plus years, you're only at 54 K, you know, it's like, you know, hold on. Like, so you got to kind of, kind of question yourself, like, you know, how valuable, you know, why is the market not seeing the value that we see in ourselves um, is kind of what I'm getting at. And so the same thing to kind of go on, you know, what type of benefits, you know, that strength coaches are getting. He mentioned that, you know, not getting benefits, et cetera. Uh, and so we still have 33 percent, you know, who don't receive any benefit. You know, some get medical, dental and vision, but we still have one third of the people, you know, it was, I think it was like close to 7000 entries on this website uh, that are not getting uh, dental and obviously it, it could be higher once the numbers um, all the numbers come in it could go up or down uh, and so moving forward same thing here is that we see that you know based on the type of skills that an individual has it creates you know um, let's say differences in pay so you know 44,000 if you had some aspect of you know you had some nutritional you know ability and I mean abilities just you had a nutritional skill set so maybe you hold a cert or maybe you you know you majored in there and you have your uh, CSCS etc but uh, basically we see just the change in pay based on skills um, and we also see uh -oh, oh yeah we also see a change in skills based on as I kind of said with you know uh, the improvements in technology our, our ability to quantify the human body and data analysis uh, tends to show an 18% increase in average salary. So, and I've kind of already alluded to that already, that the field is changing and moving more and more to research-based, data-based, um, and um, and being able to model model that data uh, and statistics or the sabermetrics, et cetera. Um, and so the same thing here is he talked about the 72 hour work weeks, you know, or 72 hour, you know, work weeks in season off season. So, again, I just wanted to paint the context that, you know, yeah, is it hell to pay in season for sure when you're traveling full time? And I remember and you can, again, jump in at any point. Uh, but I remember um, <laughs> when I was at. Uh, the University of Washington. And, uh, you know, we, we always had this discussion about, you know, should we really travel? Like, come on, you know, we, how much do we really do on the road? And I'm not talking about for, you know, everyone else or their sports, et cetera. But I, I, I literally remember like it was yesterday. He was like, yeah, you know, the only, he said the one reason or the only reason I want you to come is because it makes, you know, it makes our team look like, man, we have, you know, hella resources. We have a lot of resources. Mm. Uh, it makes our team look, you know, uh, I mean, a demonary may not be the, the, the right word, but it makes our team look imposing because when we walk off the bus and they see, all right, you know, they see the athletes, they see we got our nutritionist here with us. They see we got our, you know, our, uh, our learning specialist. We got the strength coach. Like we look deep, we rolling in deep. Uh, and so it wasn't that, hey, Tim can offer some value, you know, to us by being able to, you know, plan the guys, et cetera. It was more so for a, from a look standpoint. And it's the same thing I've kind of alluded to already is that, you know, is a, having a strength coach more of a, a, a recruiting or a marketing tactic than it actually is like, so, you know, are you, are you paying me, you know, is half of what I'm being paid value that, you know, how I kind of create more presence of the team when we're public, et cetera. Yeah. And I would say, well, how much is that worth? I mean, clearly not much because, you know, it's not translating 
uh, in the pay. But, you know, it wasn't anything around like, hey, I want you to come because, you know, you got, you know, you're going to have a routine. Our guys are going to be able to get, you know, stuff done. Uh, we can coordinate, you know, using the weight room as we did when I met you at Fresno, um, et cetera. Are we going to be able to get those things in place? Our guys are healthy and people are on schedule and we have pitchers on, you know, particular, you know, lifting schedules, et cetera. Or is it more so for a, a, a symbolic look? Uh, and again, you know, how, how much value am I operating there? Nine times out of 10, as you kind of alluded to, man, like, yeah, you know, the value that we offer is, is obviously much higher intrinsically than what is seen by, you know, the sport coaches and what they value that because the athletes are the ones who really know the amount of value that we bring. And I've seen that, you know, in my four or six years, you know, the amount of value that I've seen returned is how the athletes, you know, acknowledge what that value really is. And dang, Tim, you know, I, I wouldn't even be able to make it through the season if you wasn't, you know, putting all them late nights in, you know, in the weight room trying to get yeah. me recovered and et cetera and, and everything yeah. that you do. Like it, it wouldn't even have been possible. But how much you do the strength coach, not strength coaches, but do the sport coaches know that? No. Does administration know that? No. And I'm not saying all of them aren't doing stuff behind the scenes as well, but you know, strength coach, strength coaching is really, you know, as much as you do on the clock, it's really how much as you do off the clock as well that doesn't get accounted for. And you can kind of, you know, jump in and throw your two cents in on there as well. No, I mean, just like you said, man, behind the scenes, you know, and I think that's why the, uh, the value can be kind of askew dependent on the organization and dependent on, you know, the importance of it. Kind of like you said with, with your guy at UW, like, you know, obviously you would be the one to kind of be able to adapt to certain situations. Like if something did happen in a warm up or something like that, and you had a player that needed to modify something like really, you'd be the only one equipped you and, you know, one of the athletic training staff would be the only one equipped to be able to kind of handle a modification through the warm up if, if somebody needed it. Um, but like you, like he said, ultimately you were there on the road with them a lot of the time if they had recruits from out of state that were checking out the game or if they had, you know, whatever the case is, um, you know, boosters at the game that were donating money and things like that from out of state. And they saw the strength coach there and they saw you warming up the guys and they saw, um, you know, the value that you, you know, the perceived value that the program had for you, then, I mean, that's only going to benefit, you know? And so, like you said, like, is it more symbolic or is it actual, is it actually helpful? I think that could be argued every which way. We're going to kind of talk about that a little bit next week too, right? Um, yeah, not, yeah. No, nah, we're going to talk about that, yeah, in depth uh, with the study time. that we look at to see like, hey, you know, is our strength coaches being marginalized based on the findings uh, of that Oklahoma State uh, football study? Yeah, And yeah. in my opinion, I, I think it shows that, you know, are we being marginalized based on the type of value that, you know, the industry or universities or even just the current paradigm and that, Hey, we focus all our money on recruiting and not putting into strength coaches because we try to recruit the best athletes. And we think that's what is the determining factor, not developing athletes through, you know, programming and periodization and, you know, things that strength and conditioning coaches are supposed to do, which is develop the athletes. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, you know, as they kind of, you know, some people kind of say is like, are we really, you know, are we glorified personal trainers um, to get guys, you know, bigger, stronger, but are we really having the type of developmental impact if the notion is that strength coaches are there to develop, you know, the athletes physically so that, you know, when they go through, let's say the motor learning aspects on the field, 
that those can be maximized? And I would say no, because how much collaborate? Again, I, I've tried to collaborate over and over and over again, you know, with sport coaches that I've interacted with, and it, it just doesn't happen. Um, you know, either they don't have time or they don't think it's possible or for whatever reason, it's just, you know, it's, it's really impossible uh, just from my experience to collaborate uh, and try to make the, you know, what we're doing in the weight room very seamless. They just want to come in the weight room and see, all right, you know, are they sweating? Are they working hard? Is it organized? All right, bet, you know, dat me up. And, you know, we out here, you know, we coaches out of there, you know, so, you know, it's, it's really, I mean, that's really how it is. And, you know, and obviously it's frustrating. Uh, for sure, because, you know, again, if my numbers are showing that we're improving in the weight room, but, you know, let's say let's say we were measuring something on the court. Let's say for tennis, we're measuring, all right, uh, is the velocity of their backhand or is the velocity of their serves improving? And it's a no. Is it because there's some type of um, I'll say there's not a link between there's not a true link in transfer of training between what we're doing in the gym and what we're doing on the field. And so, yeah, it's a lot of stuff we'll talk about. Uh, next week uh, when we talk about that not, not you know I don't, don't want to you know spill the beans you know right, right. I, I, you know off rip but you know that's some stuff we're talking about for sure yes sir um yeah man I mean I mean again I think you know overall it's a this is you know this is why we kind of chose this article as one of it because it could go I mean there you're you're for and against a lot of things you see a lot of pros and cons in every which direction and that's why it's a good discussion and that's why it can be a meaningful discussion and i think it should be i think it should be talked about more man i think we need to get together as strength coaches and and you know kind of hash out the nitty-gritty details of everything a little bit you know i think that would be hugely beneficial and i know there's a lot of people in the industry um from my network that would benefit from that you know what i mean and so and and uh would want to see us benefit from that you know what i mean so um i mean yeah man i think overall like you know it, it, it's a tough it's a tough discussion to have but that's why we're having it yeah no I agree and and i'll go ahead and, and kind of wrap us up and i'll literally just take us through so basically in the last um, the last part of like my PowerPoint was really getting to what we kind of talked about uh, with, without it. And so, you know, he mentioned the unskilled auto worker. And so I was just talking about basically the nature of, you know, how do you really develop a skill set by becoming, let's say, uh, you work, you know, a car mechanic. Well, you work on cars. And so it's no more specific uh, than that in the case of strength and conditioning. I mean, you have to coach athletes. And if you're not coaching athletes, you're not gaining experience there. So maybe that's why the wages are different, let's say, from an unskilled auto worker. And is unskilled meaning they've never worked on cars? Or does unskilled worker mean they've never had a full-time job, but they've always worked on cars? And in my opinion, it's just a different ball game. and how much of that is, you know, political, as well. And then I also said that I would like to know, you know, more about his example of him, you know, having his master's and his bachelor's degree and 10 years experience, but making minimum wage at a university. Uh, I would also, you know, like to know that as well. Uh, and so we already kind of talked about the minimum wage, you know, to millionaire coaches uh, and just the the cost of qualification. And there are some, you know, tax write-off opportunities there if your university can't pay uh, for your uh, continued education or you maintaining your certification. And then I talked about, you know, the years of interning uh, and graduate assistance, which is the typical route into getting a full-time job. And we talked about that a uh, ton. We talked about the missing talent. 
um, that, you know, it's not being afforded to work in the workforce because of these barriers. Uh, and I said, you know, and if it, let's say if the industry didn't change, you know, what are ways that, you know, that can be financed, you know, and I, and I know a lot of people working part-time jobs, you know, trying to pay for the certs or trying to pay for it to make, you know, doing these internships realistic. Um, and we'll talk about this in another podcast as well, you know, about what infrastructural changes can we make to make uh, one it more competitive, but more competitive top down in wages and for those entering the field, et cetera. And can everyone win uh, in this aspect? And we talk about, again, is the labor union best? I look at unemployment rates that they've been plummeting or going down. They're almost approaching 4% as of 2018. So, you know, more coaches have been, uh, been employed over time so we're not seeing this you know reverse aspect where hey you know strength coaches aren't getting jobs uh, and that's not the case and then i use again my example of numbers of years on the job between an athletic director and a strength coach a head basketball coach and a strength coach a head football coach and a strength coach and a uh, athletic trainer and a strength coach and what you see here is kind of what i alluded to already is that there's a tremendous amount of turnover in strength and conditioning in that first and second year. Strength coaches aren't staying in, and it may seem like it's not, but see, the interesting thing is, and this is what I thought about when I first got into the field, and I was like, all right, what are the real chances that I would become a director of a university program? I said slim to none, because if I look at this chart, and this actually made me reflect, if I look at this chart here, and I see that for assistant strength coaches, the turnover is exceptionally high. We do know that the directors who tend to hold positions, they tend to stay in the positions for multiple years. So you have to really be in a good time, a good uh, like good timing upon your arrival. And let's say that, you know, SID is um, is um, actually on their way out. They're retiring or they're taking another job somewhere else, et cetera. So I said, man, you know, is it, is it really realistic? No, you got to pay your dues and put a lot of time in. Um, and so with athletic directors, you see that as it gets past one to two years, I mean, they, they're staying in jobs, the same job longer than strength coaches. So not a lot of turnover there. Uh, same thing with head basketball coaches. If you go out to 11 years, they're staying longer than strength coaches. Same thing for head football, same thing for athletic trainers. And if we look at the age breakdown to kind of talk about is the income inequality because of age, age is never really accounted for. Well, it's the same thing. Well, as I said before, most of your strength coaches are younger on average than your AD coming into their positions at the same time. Same thing for athletic trainers. Athletic trainers, after you get after again, 30 years old, they outnumber strength coaches continually as you approach. Most of them are in their 40s, as it says, over 40%. And for ADs, I mean, it's almost uh, 80% or it's you know, right at 70%. And the only thing I wanted to show here was that there is a way to get income mobility. So being able to move, you know, your pay increase through skills, education, or knowledge, skills, and abilities and experience, you know, are you working at the same job consecutively uh, and also, are you staying in the field, you know, based on the absolute number of years as you go? And then we also see that, you know, what companies or what type of company size, and this could be revenue as well, are generally hiring, you know, strength coaches. And again, a thousand to 10,000 employees, they're pretty big companies in this case, um, universities or schools, because strength coaches are highly concentrated in education. So that's the other thing as well, highly concentrated um, in education. We're not even talking about the youth market that's been untapped because there's strength coaches that are needed at the youth market. So we can actually create more jobs. And again, I'm like, we, we would talk about this later, but we can actually create more jobs by creating a need, a greater need for strength coaches 
uh, or more awareness at the high school level, at the youth level, where strength coaches should be for talking about movement competence and trying to create good habits early on. Uh, because once you get an athlete, you know, at the college level, yeah, you, you can play, you know, injury management. But at that point, a lot of the things that are that have been set in place physiologically are, you know, kind of what you, what, what you got. And you can definitely change and improve. But I'm just saying is that why not start? at the grassroots level before it gets to you on that problem. We'll talk about that a little later as well. And so what I wanted to create here with these three slides, and so I'm just having them on here. So when you view it, you can go back and read them if you like. Um, it's basically that, again, all of the negative effects tend to outweigh the positive effects of labor, uh, of creating a union, um, and it tends to drive unemployment. Again, he used the example of the steel uh, industry, of the coal industry. And then he also uses the example, this is an article from Thomas Sowell, uh, Economist, uh, and also used the Employee Free Choice Act, and just a lot of the negative aspects that come from unionizing. As I kind of say, unemployment rises. Yeah, you get the increase in minimum wage, but again, as he kind of alludes to, there's no free lunch here. You're gonna lose, you're gonna pay for it in some way. Uh, and the market where we act and adjust and how much, as we kind of saw as well, is going to dictate, be dictated that, hey, you know, if strength coaches are demanding, you know, this pay increase, well, what if we just get one of our ATs or one of our assistant basketball coaches or assistant baseball coach, uh, baseball coach to get the CSCS? Now we got the strength coach and the assistant coach. Hey, that's more efficient. So I'm saying is just like the oil, uh, the coal, don't plant ideas, you know, into the industry to find ways to become more efficient, uh, because again, that will, pr it will price you out of a job. Uh, and so going forward, again, same thing, we talked about the 60 hour work week. Uh, and again, you know, are, are a lot of the things that we're alluding to, are they justified based on, again, experience, skills, knowledge and abilities and education? Because if they are, then we definitely have an argument for why we're not uh, getting paid equally based on what the market is dictating based on our knowledge, skills, and abilities where the market is moving. Um, and so same thing, should there be a salary cap for head coaches? No, you probably should just put a hard cap on what type of skills they need or what type of education they need so you can stop this malpractice and then we can potentially fish the gap um, there. Uh, in that case. But again, in my opinion, because head coaches can dictate revenue, I mean, they're, they're just going to be worth more in the sense of how much money they're getting. Um, and in my opinion, if a university, as he kind of alludes to, uh, flat alludes to, is that, I mean, hey, if the revenue of the company is improving, then everyone's pay should go up, you know, comma sutra to that revenue. So, you know, if we're paying you 10, it's just say if 10% of the revenue was going to salaries. And now the, you know, let's say the university is making hundred million and the next year they make 200 million, then 10% of 200 million is more money. So therefore everyone should make more money, but that tends to not happen. What happens is you have a fixed price. And when it gets to 200 million, now the amount of money you're paying the salaries is 5% instead of raising and staying at 10%. That would probably solve a lot of the issues if everyone got paid based on how much money was being made. On really good seasons, you, maybe you get more money on you know seasons that aren't so great or there's a hit. Then again, you don't go drop below what your minimum salary is, but it only improves, but it doesn't decrease just because. But again, maybe that's asking for too much you know, as you're going forward. Yeah. Um, and only have a few, a few more. Um, and so same thing here, you know, again, a lot of the justifications. And like I said, this is more so so that you have the slide and you can review it in isolation and read it and kind of go on because a lot of stuff has already been said uh, moving forward.
Um, and I use the NFL Players Association. I've already said that between the discrepancy between who, it, what is the trade-offs? What are the benefits? Is it for the rookies? Rookies probably say, nah, man, you know, it's hell to pay that I'm under contract for five years. And let's say Russell Wilson, who was vastly underpaid, uh, and you can say, oh, what was his contribution? Okay, the defense was the reason why they made it, you know, Legion of Boom, et cetera. But he was vastly underpaid until he got his second contract. And that's the name of the game for a lot of these, you know, quarterbacks or top skill position guys who are stuck under their rookie deals and they outplay those rookie deals early, but they're under team control. And that's exactly what, you know, let's say the system or the owners would want. Yeah, I would love, love to have team control. And this is probably more the case for running backs who have, you know, in this case, short, uh, shelf lives, but getting to that first long term or getting to that second contract, I mean, it's like make or break. You know, am I going to get there? Are they going to overuse me until I had, they have to end up paying me, et cetera? So we, you know, we look at that there. So in this case, to what benefit has it been? Less practice for veterans, et cetera, but that's less developmental time for these rookies who are competing, you know, to try to get, you know, a piece of that bread uh, there. Uh, and so same thing, again, history just says no on labor unions and them being more uh, detriment than good to a particular organization or to the union. And the last slide, this is another article. And I'm not sure if he pulled from this article, but very similar in its notion that, uh, you know, strength coaches, uh, the position that they're in, you know, is uh, in a place of, again, inequality. And, you know, they're just getting a very small piece of the pie. And I ended again with a quote uh, here that much of the social history of the, wor the Western world over the past few decades has involved replacing what worked with what sounded good. And labor unions tend to sound really good, but for the most part, they just haven't turned into tangible things uh, for you. So if do you have any closing uh, statements, any closing words before we get out of here, uh, Coach? All I, all I was gonna say, all I was gonna say is you better love this job you better man what because <laughs> otherwise you're gonna be like my guy flat and you're gonna feel like you were wronged and you're gonna feel like you need to unionize with all your boys in order to make things right when in actuality uh the system is rigged um it's messed up and so you better love coaching athletes and you better love being in that environment um because otherwise it's always going to seem unfair yeah, man, I, I agree. You definitely got to have uh, a love for what you do. And again, you know, we'll talk about, we kind of alluded to already what we'll talk about on our next podcast. Uh, and the discussion will be around, you know, are really our strength coaches marginalized based on a study that was conducted in 2013 uh, with the Oklahoma State football program. And what they saw was that athletes were getting bigger and stronger, but they were not improving in speed characteristics. In this case, uh, the 40 yard, uh, basically they weren't sprinting faster, except, but they were improving in other areas. And this creates the notion that, you know, how much value are strength coaches really adding? And is this one reason why we are being marginalized? So I really appreciate you tuning into the Sports Performance Professional Podcast. We'll see you next time. Appreciate y'all.